Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're listening, however you're listening. This is Quantum of History, and I'm your host, Donnie Waldron. Today's going to be episode 9. It's going to be Quantum of Solace, and we're going to be talking about the Bolivian water crisis from 1999 to 2000. we got a really special guest today. Um, I'm so happy, so proud to have him on. David Zaritsky is going to be on here today. He's going to give us all our knowledge about being a CEO. We're going to talk quantum. We're going to talk style. We're going to talk cheerleaders. It's going to be a really good time. It's going to be a funny time. And as anything David does, it's just pure gold. Uh, I met David at Operation Gatherall. Um, I went up there, and he couldn't be more gracious. First time I met him, he was welcoming. I said, all right, you got to come play the poker game. He was welcoming, and we had a really good time. So you know, Dave's always somebody who's owned my living room with his YouTube content. So I'm really excited to have him on here today. He's really the godfather of all these little Bond events we do and all the Bond content. And he's a real inspiration for a lot of people. And I know he is for myself. So I'm excited to have him on. Uh, It's going to be real fun. It's going to be a great treat to have him on here today. All right, we're going to start with the Bond on this day award. This is going to go out. Well, I forgot to uh, specify that it needs to be the movie and the topic. So a lot of people just guess the movie. So I'm going to just guess shout out to everybody. We're going to start with the Ozzy Bond brothers. Really funny guys. Really cool guys from Australia. I met them at the uh, From Pluto TV with Love event. It was a really good time. And Jason Kim, he was our guest last week. He got it. 007 underscore HMSS. I follow this guy. He's a really cool dude. Uh, he's Miami-based, really cool. Has a lot of good posts and really energetic guy, so he's a really cool guy. If you're not following him, follow him. Shamir from Shamrocks underscore Shanigans last week's winner. He got it again this week. Dr. Jordan Kaplan, uh, also a really cool guy. He, he hits me up every once in a while in the DMs, and he's a really cool dude. And then somebody called the Bond uh, Amori, Ar- Armory. Oh, I, think, I, think, I think it's pronounced uh, Amori. Uh, run by some guy named Ray Crump. Crumpus, I think his name is. I don't know. Some greasy Italian guy probably who likes the Bond love stories. I don't know. I don't know if I'd follow that. Oh, Bond Omori guy. Lefty's Donuts always has really good um, uh, comments for people's uh, Instagram. So he's a really good follow. And El Rents is another one that got it. So they're all cool guys. Thanks, you guys, for commenting, guessing. You all got it right. I figured the picture was a little easy. It was just the, the, uh, the well in the desert pretty much gave it away. But you guys nailed it, so you guys all get it. Congratulations, and thanks again for following the page. If you're not following the page, it's Quantum of History on Instagram. Follow me. So what else has been going on? We got Operation Phoenix coming up on May 30th. After the success we had with Operation Solitaire, with the um, excitement and the um, participation we had, we're going to do it again. It's going to be a, a really, really fun event. And like I said, when you join these things, you, it's a lot of fun. Like you actually will meet people that you'll become friends with, and you'll you'll f- trade each other's Instagrams and stuff, and you'll start DMing these tr- people. And I can't tell you how many friends I've made just from doing this stuff. So I can't I can't stress enough that if you guys are thinking about wanting to do it, if you're Bond fans, um, absolutely join these things. It's May thirtieth. Go to the Bond Experience on Instagram or Facebook. Um, and get the details and the links and all that. And he's got a YouTube video up too that describes everything. So go check it out. And if you guys are, are free on Saturday, May 30th, come join us. It's going to be, um, it's always, these things I'm telling you are always a lot of fun. And I want to give a really, really, really special thank you to Ruben Wakeman from to- Toys of Bond. If you're not following that page on Instagram, definitely follow him. He's got some really cool stuff and a must follow for any Bond fan. And, and I put up a post last week and I said, you know, kind of looking to revamp my, my logo. And he, he uh, reached out to me and said, hey, man, I'll do, I'll do it. Just let me know what you're thinking of. 
So I sent him some things, and he came back with a beautiful logo. Man, thank you so much. And that's what's beautiful about the Bond community is that these guys, everybody is, is you know, excited. You're instantly friends once you become part of the Bond community. So um, thank you so much, Ruben, for doing that for me. It looks beautiful, and it looks awesome. I can't thank you enough for doing that and taking the time out of your day to help me out with that. So thank you so much, Ruben. And if you're not following Toys of Bond, follow it. Follow it immediately. Pause this podcast, go follow it, and then come back. So without further ado, we're going to start today's topic. It's going to be Quantum of Solace. Now, recently, there's been a lot of debate in the Bond community about whether or not Quantum of Solace is a good entry to the to the Bond franchise. I, for one, actually really like like Quantum of Solace. There are plot holes for sure. There's drawbacks to the movie, and there's some things that just don't make sense. But as far as like just looking like a cool Bond, I I, I don't know how you Quantum of Sol- how you beat Quantum of Solace before how Bond looks, how he acts, and how cool he is, and how badass he is. That's those are, that's my my quintessential. If I'm going to say what kind of bond I want, I want the Quantum of Solace Daniel Craig Bond. That's the kind of that's the kind of movie I'm looking for. And I always say like, if you were to combine On Her Majesty's Secret Service and Quantum of Solace, you'd get a perfect movie to me. Because I think that what On Her Majesty's Secret Service lacks for me is all the things that Quantum of Solace has. For me, I think On Her Majesty's Secret Service is kind of dull and droll as far as the bond, the presentation, the style. But the movie, the pacing, the plot, the editing, the directing, that's all perfect. So if I'm going to show somebody new, it's going to be, I would show them Casino Royale first, followed by Skyfall, followed by Dr. No, followed by Quantum of Solace, honestly. If the person's back in, after the fourth one, then we can bring them on to something else and start being more adventurous with it. But I'm going to save the Roger Moores for, for later, that's for sure. And then probably most people by now who have seen a Brosnan, but probably GoldenEye or something like that. But that's what I would do. I would definitely put Quantum Solace up there as far as showing a new Bond fan. Is it the best plot? Is it even in the top 10 Bond movies? No, but if I find that, if I want something in the background, Quantum Solace is up there. Uh, the biggest drawback I have is that um, the Bond the Bond girl, Olga, I think she's the weakest Bond girl of the entire franchise. And I'm surprised I never hear anybody say that. I never hear her put in there as the weakest Bond, but for me, it's, she's definitely the weakest Bond. Her story isn't great. I don't find her as an actress very good, and I, and I don't know. She just doesn't do anything for me. But again, it, I just thought it was a cool movie, and seeing him in the Harrington jacket or even in the suit with the no tie, all scruffed up and all dirtied up, I mean, he, he, he looked, looked awesome in a, a whole movie, so I definitely love that movie. One criticism I hear a lot about Quantum of Solace, though, is that the, the villain's plot about controlling water source is a, is a dumb plot and it's not grandiose enough. And I just am baffled by that because I think that that is a creative. I think it's a outside the box. And I think it's really relevant to today's society. And I think people don't realize how precious of a resource water is and how scarce it is for the rest of the world. There, is more, there are more people that, had, that do not have access to clean potable water than do in this world, especially with waste management too. So the fact that they want to control and monopolize and privatize the waterworks or public works is a really interesting story. So I definitely can, 
that's what today's topic is going to be about because the even in Quantum Solace, they talk about it in Bolivia and it really happened in Bolivia. And we're going to explore that. We're going to explore the uh, social ramifications and all the complexities that went into this topic because it's really a really interesting story, really interesting topic, and it really is a Bond story. So for people who say that the plot is dumb, I just retort with the fact that it really happened. So Dominic Green uses, uses the guise of like being an environmental conservation company. Now he uses political clout. He manipulates both the CIA, he manipulates Bolivian heads of state, and he secures exclusive rights to a large reservoir of water in Bolivia. And in the late 1990s, Bolivia experienced firsthand the complexities of bringing portable water to its people. It was an effort that ended with deaths, arrests, $25 million worth of losses in a country that was set back for decades and already mounting despair. Bolivia is the poorest nation in South America. And this, ev- this event actually put it even more behind the eight ball. Now, most public works are ran by government because the cost of implementation of these works, just because they kind of automatically create a monopoly, because it doesn't make any sense for there to be multiple water pipelines, multiple pumping stations, multiple treatment stations in a city. And the problem with government-ran public works is that government can't do anything right. If you've ever worked for the government, you know that it is completely the most inefficient enterprise that's ever that mankind has ever come up with. Like in my hometown in New York, we had we had county uh, trash removal, and it was terrible. And they wouldn't show up some days. They was costing taxpayers millions and millions of dollars in a small town just to get this done because it was running with zero efficacy. Finally, the government said, all right, we can't do this anymore. We're going to have to let a private company come in. So a private company came in and took it over. And almost within two years, everybody's trash is done right. It's taken care of. And that company brought jobs and prosperity and brought a lot of money into that town. And then just by switching in a mere two years from an inefficient, inept, public public servant model to a privatized person who knows what the hell they're doing. And it was really, I mean, it's, the other thing you see is like USPS, the United States Postal Service, loses millions and almost billion dollars a year. And then you look at UPS and FedEx, and they're a Fortune 500 company. And what they do the same thing, they just deliver shit. I mean, that's all they're doing is just delivering mail and shit. And one is losing billions of dollars and the other two are flourishing, and that's a, a perfect example of how, all right, you need to, privatization in some aspects works when it's regulated. Now, this story, the, the privatization works in developed nations where they already have the infrastructure and the money to keep these and have the ability and the workforce to actually implement these privatization things and also have government regulations to also keep business in check. And when it works together in a symbiotic nature, it actually is very efficient and really works out well. But in developing nations that don't have the infrastructure, don't have the workforce, don't have the ability to keep these things in check, and don't have a well-established infrastructure, it can lead to dire consequences. And that's what happened with Bolivia, is they tried to bring a very modern thing to a third world country with failed results. That They just weren't ready for it. Many third world nations have seen exponential increase in their growth po- in their populations. Some of them in the last 30 years have tripled in size while failing to exponentially increase their infrastructures. So when you travel around the world and you visit cities in other countries, you can see this right on display with their electrical system. I mean, it looks like somebody's playing a giant game of cat's cradle in some of these cities with the way that the electrical wires are literally run from house to house like clothesline. It's a glaring example of unregulated growth and they ignore the problem and they just do temporary fixes without doing complete overhauls that are needed on these old cities that grow. And 
it's it works for a little while, but once it becomes too big, it becomes a giant problem that needs that has dire consequences, really. So the world is running out of fresh potable water. Only 3% of the Earth's water is fresh water, and even less of that is potable due to heavy pollution runoff. Fresh water supplies are basically made of like lakes, rivers, marshes, aquifers. And these aquifers are like the underground, they call it the water table, but it'll be the underwater reservoirs that can be welled for consumption. So these aquifers, so the water table, you dig a well, and normally you have to only dig six feet to get to water on this aquifer. Well, these countries and these cities are using water at such a rate that it's now at some point down to 100 feet from six feet. Just to give you an idea of how much water these places are, are doing, so they have to rely on other resources. And the way to do that is take the water that's above ground, that's polluted, and they have to then treat it. And it's a sophisticated, complex problem that has to be done. And also our own human waste. I mean, there are, if you look at some like the Indian countries and stuff like that, the, the runoff from human waste is, 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 a, is, a, is a really bad problem as far as the diseases like typhoid, cholera, dysentery. They're all derived from human race, and it's rampant in these in these cities. The actual purification of water is becoming a big big business, and they use a lot of they use the same oil pipes. Just like when um, the guy from Stranger Things is on the plane with Dominic Green, and he says you can't buy up that much oil pipeline without raising some red flags. They use the same type of pipeline, same type of technology to get water out of the ground to treat it as they do oil. So they really would use this, the oil pipelines, and that's what would draw the attention of the CIA. In Alaska, it's becoming far more profitable to distribute and mine water. So a lot of companies actually are, are moving away from oil and going into water because it's far more profitable. It is far more profitable and it's far less media attention and no, a lot less politicized. They just be like, hey, we're just bottling water than it is to, hey, we're pumping oil out of the ground. So these companies are moving into that because there's a market for it and it's far more profitable and you get to use the same technology you already have for oil. One of the companies doing this is something called Betchel. Now I had never heard of Betchel before doing this research, but it actually is the largest American company, largest American private owned um, construction company, and it's the lar 11th largest in the world. Betchel started in 1898 when Warren Betchel moved from Peabody, Kansas to Oklahoma, and he started building railroads with mules. Uh, his company grew, and then he moved to Oakland, California to work for Western Pacific Railroad to help them finish the, uh, the railroads over there. He then branched off into building roads, bridges, um, railways, and he also went into hydroelectric projects. Betcha was one of the six companies that took part in the building of the Hoover Dam. And as World War II came about, Betcha got into oil and nuclear technology. And by the end of World War II, Betcha was, was an engineering giant. They had projects all over the world. And as of today, their resume includes operations in Brisbane, Calgary, Dubai, Houston, London, New Delhi, Washington, D.C., San Francisco, Santiago, Shanghai, Nairobi, and Taipei. Since 1992, they've built all the, electric, the Olympic Games. Um, Betchel is also part of a $24 billion cross railway project that's going on in London right now. And they were the lead company in stopping the oil fires in Kuwait during the Gulf War. I mean, this company has taken on some of the most ambitious, complex feats of engineering that the world has ever seen. They've been able to navigate world politics, and they push the bounds of human accomplishments. And with the scale of projects that companies like Betchel takes on, it takes on not only engineering prowess, but you also have, have to have political finesse. You know, you have to talk to these dignitaries, you have to talk to these politicians, and you, you got to bite the bullet sometime and give some sad handies to these guys because, you know, they're not doing this stuff for free. Sometimes you just got to 
give them the old slow stroke to get in there. And that's kind of what it takes with this political powers. I mean, you're not getting these things for free, especially in other developing nations. And I'm not saying that, you know, developed nations are free from this backhanded backroom handjob thing that I talk about. But it's definitely a thing. It's definitely a thing. You have to have the political savvy to do this. And Betzel understands this. They put they put former Secretary of States as on their board of directors. They put people that not only know about engineering and business savvy. They have to. They know people that have contacts throughout the world. And when you leave the Secretary of State of the United States and then go a board of directors for a company, that I think is a brilliant move. That person has already been all over the world on the government dime maneuvering these people and they have an understanding of what it takes. And he probably has, you know, deals and, and relationships with people all over the world. So to bring people on like that with real poli- with real elite access to the real elites of all over the world is a genius move. And that's what Betzel does. And another part of this story that you don't hear a lot about, and I don't think people know a lot about because I didn't know a lot about before I researched it for a future um, movie that I'm going to be doing for for the for this podcast but is the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. Um, they come into play when the developing nations after nations go bankrupt. So when a nation goes bankrupt, the World Bank and IMF they come in and they freeze the nation's assets. This makes nation leaders beholden to the demands of the IMF. They can't get loans for anything unless the IMF or or World Bank uh, say they can. They basically come in there and they take your wallet and they say this is this is our money now and you will spend it how we do. So one of the main emphasis of the late 90s and up to today that the World Bank and IMF do when they freeze assets of a nation is they want to bring potable water and waste management to these nations. Now the World Bank and IMF force nations to implement best practices form of public utilities. So this includes opening up nations to foreign companies and they privatize public works. Because most of these nations don't have the infrastructures to implement um, the kind of quality water treatment that they that the people need and especially the waste management that's so desperately required uh, in many of these nations. So this is the upper echelon power. I mean, this is World Bank, IMF, large corporation, foreign dignitaries, and you're dealing with the World Bank and the IMF, which have control of the world. I mean, we're gonna again, we're gonna talk about these these two things later in in a, in a future episode. But um, these guys have the real power in the world. So when the contract rights for Bolivia Waterworks came up in the city of Cochamba, only one city bid on the project. And that was this joint venture called Aguas del Tunari. And they won the bid because they were the only better. Aguas del Tunari was a joint venture where 55% of the investment was from International Water, which is a subsidiary of Bechel Incorporated. 35% from Abagoa of Spain and four Bolivian companies which had 5% each. These guys aren't some upstart company that don't know what they're doing. These guys are the most professional that they have. So when they make proposals and findings, their findings need to be taken with great prestige. However, local politics got involved in Cochamba. They refused and they pushed their own agenda on them. Cochamba's mayor, Manfred Reyes Villa, was an enigmatic man and he had a really grandiose personality. He had a penchant for the extravagant and in his time as mayor, he did a lot of vanity projects. One of the biggest projects on his platform was this Miskuni Dam. The dam was to bring water from the mountains to the town, um, but it really turned into a project where he got rich and the contractors got rich. And when the World Bank, the IMF, and International Water of Betchel um, investigated it, they all deemed that this was un- un- uneconomical, like it was a waste, of, a waste of money to put any more money into this project. The project had already lost $5 million and it was continuing to flounder. And the original proposal by Aguas del Tunare was uh, submitted in 1997, and it had no funding for this project. 
and it was quickly stopped by Mayor Reyes. So Aguas del Tunare resubmitted the project in 1999, and they included some funding to save the Miscuni Dam project. And only after the Miscuni Dam project was included in Aguas del Tunare project did Reyes get the approval. So it's got the approval of, of Reyes. It gets city backing, national banking, IMF, World Bank. It's all good to go. The project's now set to go. Now, as the plan was about to be implemented, local politicians once again got in the way. International Waters and Aguas del Tenare project had laid out their plan moving forward, and it initially was agreed that there would be a slight increase in the water bill, but in the 25th hour, Aguas del Tenare was brought to the negotiating table again by local politics. The Bolivian officials demanded a whole bunch more things. One, that the, the, the Miscuni Dam be built within two years of the contract. That Aguas del Tenares pay um, SAMAPAS, which is an acronym for Cochamba's public works system that was in there previously. They had to pay off their, their debt that they had accrued. They also had to build a treatment plant that Aguas del Tenare told them that was way extravagant and was not necessary for the size of the city but they demanded that they had build this special project that they had. And they also had to pay for the use of tunnels that were under construction. They basically were shaking down Aguas del Tenare, which they knew had deep pockets in order to get this project done. Now, the Bolivia government was using Aguas del Tenare to bail them out of all the bad decisions that they had had before, all the debt that they had. So Aguas del Tenare should have basically told the Bolivian government at this point, in my opinion, to eat a dick. Like, no, I'm not doing this. Like, you're going to take it. We know what the, what the hell we're doing. You can either take this or, you know, eat it. Like I said, eat a dick. You're not getting your, you're not getting your hand job. All right. You're not getting your slow stroke. Eat a dick. We're not doing this. But they didn't. The initial tariff was supposed to be a 35% raise in both sewage and water. Now, 10% of the costs were going to be incurred by the poorest people. And then 106% of the costs were to be incurred by the wealthiest. And a marketing campaign was supposed to be sent out by the government to explain exactly what's going on and all the things that were going to happen. But no such campaign was done. So November 1st, 1999, Aguas del Tenare took over the services. They invested $10 million of capital into the water service. So they raised the rates. And citizens were quickly upset about this. This was seen and it became a narrative that this foreign company was coming in here and extorting Bolivian government. Just like in Quantum Solace, they, they made that narrative that some foreign companies like pay it or we'll find somebody else that'll pay it. That's exactly the narrative that was played out. And Mayor Reyes did nothing to quell this narrative. In fact, he quickly acted as though he had nothing to do with this deal. He couldn't believe it was being done. He denounced the Aguas del Tenare project and only fueled the, the tensions that were rising to a fever pitch. In February 2000, the first demonstration started against Aguas del Tenare. Human barricades were formed by men in the city. Women demonstrated, and they also cooked for the, uh, for the men who were standing in, women in these barricades. Now, it was rumored that these protests were the result of a groundswell campaign funded by narco traffickers. So Bolivia grows a lot of coca leaf, which is the derivative of cocaine. And in order to maintain these coca fields, coca fields a large amount of water is necessary. And they were the ones that were affected the biggest by this, by this rate increase. So at a rate increase of 106%, it greatly cut into the profits of the farmers. The farmers aren't seen as like the nar narco traficantes who are like you think of as Chapo or, the, you know, big drug lords. The cocoa farmers are just farmers, um, almost like Antifa and George Soros that we've seen recently is that these narco traficantes went into um, students and they went into college age people and they riled them up and said, this is the time, you know, this is time to go against this big bad foreign company that's in here. It's exploiting you guys. And they funded these protests. They actually gathered them. They did propaganda, and that's how it, the groundswell it, and it just manifests itself from there. The protests were growing, and then troops were sent in to quell the protest. 
and like I said, confrontations were mounting. On one protest, nearly 200 protesters were arrested, 75 civilians, and 51 policemen were wounded in the quarrels. So the Catholic Church came in and they acted as a mediator. The populist vote was sent out where 96% of the population wanted the contract canceled. By April 2000, protests had swept the nation. Protest leaders were being arrested, some sent to prison, some were left to flee in the Amazon for hiding. Protest groups were blocking most of Bolivia's major highways, and a national state of emergency was declared and martial, ma- martial law was implemented. The army deployed tear gas and on the masses to disperse. And then the final straw was there was a sharpshooter that was dressed in civilian clothes that started shooting live rounds into the crowd behind military lines. And then the sharpshooter was later caught on camera shooting into the crowd. It was this guy Robinson de la Fuente. He actually shot a 17-year-old Victor Hugo Daza, was struck in the face and he was killed instantly. And that was, that was the end of it. Once, once the deaths started mounting, like I said, six people lost their lives in these protests. Companies, executives in Bolivia were told that their safety was no longer guaranteed and they were told they needed to leave the country now. The Agua del Torinas offices were ransacked by protesters and burned. The project was dead and there was no more Betchel was going to do. They, the contract was done, the project was over, and it was killed. Now in the aftermath, the Bolivian officials washed their hands of Agua del Torina, pleading ignorance and saying that they were forced by the World Bank and the IMF to allow foreigners to take over the system. Samapa um, returned to running the water system, and it was found in international court because Betchel sued the Bolivian government for $25 million. It was sued that it was due to civil unrest and they never got a dime back. In the years since the disaster, Bolivia's water system has gone into further despair. Their poverty rate has grown and there's no relief in sight. And these, these third world countries need foreign investment to help them, but they need trust and stabilization. Just like we talked about in Diamonds Are Forever, that companies are not going to go in there and set in their, their capital if there's going to be civil unrest and no destabilization. And Bolivia was a part where it was the narrative was perpetuated that Bolivia could not be trusted. You can't put your money in Bolivia because you can't deal with the politics and you're going to lose all your money. So foreign investors stayed away from that country and they still have. They, they don't have much progress going on. It's basically, you know, the coca leaf and, and coffee and um, are their main exports right now. So um, it, this, this event really set them back decades. So to help sort out all this craziness, we're going to bring in the CEO himself. The man, the myth, the legend. You know him, you love him, you follow him, you watch him on YouTube, you see him on Instagram. You even listen to his podcast now. David Zaritsky from The Bond Experience. Welcome in. While others walk. All right, cannot believe it. David Zaretsky is joining me today. What an honor. The purveyor of sartorial posterity, the king, the man with the plan, David Zaretsky. What an honor to be here. Thank you so much for coming on today. The, the honor is all mine, and I can't live up to that introduction, so we're doomed <laughs> from the start. <laughs> well, anybody that follows your content know you're going to more than uh, add to this humble little podcast. So thank you so much for coming on today, Dave. I, I'm happy to be here. I was a fan from... Your very first podcast. I love supporting you. And you've only gotten better. Actually, really, really interesting stuff. Well, I appreciate it, man. I, like I said, once once we started talking about boobs, it just it just became natural. So I think that's... That's your main... That. Well, I mean, you know, it's to me, that's how I describe your brand. It's like, <laughs> you know, come for the history, but stay for the boobs. <laughs> that's it. I'm stealing that tagline then, Dave. <laughs> 
So today we're going to be talking about Quantum of Solace, and I can't think of anybody more that, more fitting to talk about Quantum is the guy that just, like I said, for me, Quantum of Solace is just the coolest looking movie. The plot, okay, there's holes in it, but it's the coolest looking, and Daniel looks the, the, the part of it. So I just want to get your feelings. What do you, what do you view when you watch Quantum of Solace? I, I do like it. I'm a fan. I've probably done a couple of videos on, on how much I'm a fan of it, mostly because out of all the Daniel Craig films, it feels like a single mission. It mm. feels like he's on a mission. Bond as an assassin slash secret agent is on a particular mission. And we, we follow him through his journey. Now, it does have the whole thing of, you know, it's, it's Bond gone rogue. And it seems like Daniel Craig's films are all Bond gone rogue, which I'm not crazy about. And the editing, I'm, I'm, I'm just not a fan of some of the editing. It tends to smooth out after the first act as far as editing is concerned. But from the way it looks, uh, the way it feels, the music, like you said, the sartorial sense. Um, and then my number one thing of why I like Quantum of Solace is because out of all the Daniel Craig films, this is badass Bond. Exactly. He is killing people. He's smashing faces. He's getting bloodied up. He's doing elevator fights, you know, using his head tied up. I mean, shit. I mean, you walk away <laughs> and you're like... I got to be more like that. I got to be badass in my life. So, I mean, from a motivational standpoint, I really dig Quantum of Solace. Exactly. It's got the more the more badassery, and it's not like he's going back to his family and like, oh, I miss my hometown, or oh, I got all these other issues, or my brother, or daddy. It's, it's it's pure. Just let's go. Let's kick some ass, and then we got a mission. It's tunnel vision. It's and that's exactly why I love it too. For the tutorial and how cool it is. Exactly. Even even some people have issue with him throwing Mathis in the garbage. And I think that was to show that this guy has to be cold. He has to separate his feelings. He has a moment of, you know, kind of sobering sadness of his friend dying and then click. He is a trained machine and he knows he's got to get rid of that body and make it look like, you know, some sort of random murder. What does he do? He throws him into the garbage, which seems cold and people have issues. This guy's an assassin. He has murder for breakfast. He's got to act that way. <laughs> exactly. And it's not like Mathis and him go way back and they were besties and they grew up together and they went on no. the playground and met the same chicks and stuff. No, they weren't. No. They knew each other for a little bit. And that's it's exactly. So Mathis was a means to an end. They've had a hostile relationship. It's not like you and me that have coffee every morning together. <laughs> exactly. Damn it. I got, got my 007 cup right here, ready to go. Nice. <laughs> I've got my, uh, they, this is great for a podcast. Um, I've got my <laughs> No Time to Die water bottle right here. So we're, we're fully branded out. All right. Um, so going with that, I know that a lot of people have problems with the Quantum of Solace plot. And a lot of people dog on the fact that it's about water. And I know that you're a well-versed guy. I know that you know a lot of things about history and stuff like that. And I just want to get your perspectives because this podcast is all about showing that this is a real thing. Water is a real commodity. There's a real scarcity in water. And many nations have problems even getting any kind of potable water to their nation. So the fact that people dog on it for being a bad plot, I think is ridiculous. So what is your, what is your thoughts on what actually happened in Bolivia and in the historical part of it? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. When you and I first started talking about this particular podcast, I found it interesting because I, I knew about the water wars. Mm -hmm. And even the one in Bolivia is not the first water war that happened. And, and people, you know, I think the problem they have with quantum is water wars and the water situation and clean water and water accessibility doesn't feel as big as destroying the world or right. the world's economy or an exploding volcano. Uh, that's over the top. But quite frankly, that's what makes quantum so badass because it's much more realistic. And people are like, oh, you know, he's fighting over water. He discovers water. Well, 
Yeah, there are moments when Bond probably should have told the Bolivians, hey, there's water back there when he's walking through the desert instead of them <laughs> you know, dying of thirst. I, I'll give you that. But the reality is, is like you said, this happened. And I've got to tell you something funny that you and I didn't even talk about. So last night I'm watching this horrible movie called Hotel Aramis or Aramis or something like that with Jodie Foster. And it's about Los Angeles in 2028 rioting. And what are they rioting about? because they privatized clean water in Los Angeles. <laughs> and all of Los Angeles was rioting and killing people and killing cops because of a lack of clean water. And I'm like, this is too weird. I'm talking to Donnie in the morning exactly. about water wars. It's meant so to this be is not new. It's meant yeah. to be. It's meant to be. And that's, what, that's, uh, that's the part I like about Quantum is that it's a very grounded movie for all the, for all the, the um, criticism it gets for its plot. It's very grounded in the fact that He's out there, he's getting hurt, he's getting dirty, he's getting bloody, and he's fighting for something with water, which I think is a genius move as far as a plot line. Um, and I know that we talked a lot before, and, and we talked about how the, the uh, Betchel and the company had a lot of problems with both balancing the politi politics of the area and then dealing with the World Bank, the IMF, and companies and local politics and national politics. You being a CEO... If you were Betchel or if you were running the company and you had to go and you had to market this thing to um, Bolivians who are making $2.50 a month, how are you approaching it? How would you handle this situation? Yeah, there's no real easy answer with this. I mean, one of the things, and I know this is going to sound very forced coming from somebody who oversees pharmaceutical marketing and advertising, which to some people feels very forced and very cold and very scientific is um, I would have actually gone with something of authenticity. I would have talked to about the features and benefits of the company. Um, what does clean water mean? You know, what are the different process that you're using? But the number one thing I would have done, and they did not do this, was to really get a focus group of individuals that lived within these communities. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the whole for us, by us moment, where if you just get them involved and ask them a very simple question, what keeps you up at night? What are you concerned about with the way we're talking about clean water or what we're doing? Get their input and then use that as a megaphone to talk to other people to say, we're, we're talking to your own people, you, about your concerns. And they mean something. So here are the five to six things that we're doing. They didn't do that. They just raised prices and threw it out there and said, well, you've got no choice. I mean, literally, they put a boot against their throat. And what happens when people get pushed into a corner like a rabid raccoon? They're going to fight back. And that's what happened. Exactly. Like you can't grab somebody who's like a drug user and throw them down the ground and say, stop doing drugs. You need this. And until they're ready to do it. And then what you say, because it, it almost felt like the, they just were like, they put it in and there it is. And here's your water as part of Bolivians helping themselves up and actually taking ownership of it. And it feeling like they're part of this process too, rather than just being like, hey, here's your new, here's your new water to so just take it. So yeah. I, it's a great point. Exactly. You have to make it part of their, part of their culture and part of their, hey, let's all do this together rather than here's your stuff and feed it to them. Yeah. And from a PR standpoint, you know, you know, as, as a corporation, one of the, the strongest things that you can do and most I think most companies would bristle at this. You know, most companies like to sweep things under or what they call neutralize in the PR game, but is to own up to the issues, mm -hmm. own up to the fact that you made mistakes, showing fallibility, showing that this company is made of humans that make mistakes and that they are rectifying and correcting those mistakes 
is 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 literally the difference between life and death of a lot of corporations that make mistakes. Look at uh, look at Bear Aspirin, you know, yeah. and and the poisonings on the shelf. They owned up to it. They removed everything. They acted quickly. They said, you know, we have children too, and we're concerned about our children getting this tainted aspirin. Don't you take it? They took millions of dollars in loss, but now they've come back even stronger. That's not what they did in Bolivia. I mean, they, it, it's almost textbook of all the mistakes you could make in that exactly. department. It's like when Domino's has been giving us that terrible pizza for years and they started that ad campaign. They're like, hey, we know our pizza sucks, but we're trying. It sucks, but dirt cheap. If you want dirt cheap, sucky pizza, call Domino's. <laughs> we'll, throw some, we'll throw salt and garlic on it and we'll hope we like yeah, get exactly. noticed. You want cheese in the crust? That'll deaden the pain. <laughs> We just like tomato paste. That's what we like. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so have you ever had to deal with um, any kind of like political aspects where you're trying to get your, a product sold in an area and there's regulations or there's FDA or, or anything like that? There are barriers that you have to overcome. Um, how have you had to navigate any kind of political agenda along with the benefits that you know that this product has? Mm. Yeah. So it's interesting in the pharmaceutical industry, it's next to the financial industry or vertical. It's the most highly regulated industry of them all, um, which is makes it very hard to advertise and market. We have to not only go through the FDA um, for all, all claims, which is why you see in those commercials, you'll have one little bit of, hey, this is what it does. And then the other like 60 seconds is all, this may kill you. This may cause eye damage. This may, <laughs> we have to do that because of what's called medical legal. And that is a filter that, uh, Quite, quite frankly, keeps people healthy and safe. Now, you're talking about the added agenda of politicizing a particular drug or a brand. Um, a lot of that, for example, with pain medications. You know, I've worked on pain medications in the past where things like Oxycontin, um, you know, puts a veneer over pen med pain medications that don't take pen pain medications. It's bad for you, even when they're not narcotics mm -hmm. um, or what they call crossing the blood-brain barrier where it affects the brain. Uh, it, it affects the central nervous system. So we've had to, in my past, not now, but in my past, I've had to help companies navigate a very political climate where you've got left and right wing, it doesn't really matter, taking up stands against any kind of pain medication, even the ones that are, are good for you and healthy, because they like to what I call whitewash. Yeah. They like to take these broad strokes and paint them and say, suffer through the pain because you don't want to get hooked. And I'm, and, and literally our clients are like, they don't understand. We came up with a non-narcotic pain medication that is really life-changing, but because it's got this negative reputation, what do we do? So the way we've helped in that case and navigating it is really through education. And we start with the healthcare professional always, because they're the ones that have to have a reasons to believe. They're having the conversations with the patients and the caregivers who are like, well, I saw this politician tell me I shouldn't use this. And that healthcare professional or that nurse needs to say, I understand. Let me educate you. Let me give you education, not from CNN or from a news station or a YouTube channel, but rather from medical and science. So refreshing. Yeah. And that's why all pharmaceutical sales reps are always hot, hot, hot women, right? <laughs> no, Donnie. No, okay. They're there so they get it in through the front door. Okay, I <laughs> well, got it. Can I, can I tell you something? And this is not a, not a secret. Um, I, they do this much less. I, I'm happy to say the pharma industry, 
Um, the, the companies that I've dealt with, they, they truly do focus on people who can really tell a good story about, um, about inspiring people and motivating them to, to, to go along their hero journey of wellness, mm. truly, to tell that story. It used to be, especially in the 90s, and I kid you not, pharmaceutical companies would actually go to colleges and go to cheerleading squads <laughs> in their senior year. And, and I know, it sounds crazy. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Um, it sounds awesome. <laughs> right? So they would go there and they would recruit these people from cheerleading squads in their senior year about four months before they graduate and say, would you like a job straight out of school? It's going to pay seventy-five dollars to $85,000 a year. We're going to pay for your insurance on a car and we're going to give you a car stipend every year and an incredible health plan with lots of uh, career development. That's what they were filling up the sales teams with. Um, is there a, is there an opening in your company for a recruiter for such positions? <laughs> I'm not a pharmaceutical company. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, so you might be a scout. I mean, Donnie Waldron, you know, walks onto I, a campus on career day <laughs> and says, if you have a pom-pom, I, I need to talk to you. I swear I'm going to punch my guidance counselor in the face for not letting me know that this job existed. <laughs> it, and that's that I will say this, and I'm not trying to defend the industry that I work in, but it, it did exist. It, it probably still exists in some corners. It's not prevalent because I'll tell you, the healthcare professionals, especially, especially now, they're looking for someone that can be a partner in the progress of their practice. They're not looking for a wink and a nod from somebody that's cute. Mm -hmm. I mean, you and I are, but <laughs> can't we have both, Dave? You know, if you have both, that is like the trifecta. Yeah, the unicorn, right? Yeah, I mean, that's a Bond girl for you, right? You got both. <laughs> that's in, it. In some so, yeah, exactly. Nice to look at, but also can kill you. That's those are, so, those are so my favorite ones. I think if you and I were to build a pharmaceutical job offering, it might just say evergreen. <laughs> for sure. So how would you have handled uh, at the end? So it's over, Betzel's already out, they're already thrown. How do you how do you spin it? And as you say, I believe you called it uh, neutralize it. Is that what you said? How would yeah. you neutralize that situation in Bolivia after you left? I mean, me personally, I just would have fallen on the sword. You know, look at look at the actors that, you know, have drug you know, altercations or, you know, issues with the law, the, the, the ones that are smart, they just own up to it. You know, mm -hmm. Robert, Robert Downey Jr. He's iron fricking man. Yeah. And he was one of the biggest drug users in Hollywood. He owned up into it. He didn't hide it. He said, I'm fallible. Um, that's what this company should have done is we screwed up badly. We didn't listen. Um, the other thing I would do is, and this is going to seem a little bit more process oriented. I would have rebranded them. Yeah. I would have said, we're not this company anymore because it's not who we are. We're this company and here's our values. And I would have spent the next six months marketing truly their values. And I would have gotten um, actual people in the community on their board and in their focus groups and say, this is this is not a group of fat cats, you know, trying to make a buck. We're we're integrating them together and they have a voice. And of course, they didn't do that. But that's that's what I would have done. Yeah. Very cool. I kind of always thought, I always had the idea, like when I read the story, I always felt like Betchel kind of did this as a favor for the IMF or the World Bank. I don't think they ever thought it was going to be profitable, but I think they wanted to get their hands and claws into the other much more lucrative 
like the the London project, which is getting $24 billion of the roads in Kosovo and stuff like that. I almost yeah. think this was like, hey, we'll, we'll hook you up with this project if you go and help these little Bolivians out. But I mean, well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, there's a reason why, you know, things like waterworks and things like and electricity are on the monopoly board. They are worth an incredible amount. And it, it really does translate to power more than anything. Exactly. Well, like I said, we're at 17 minutes, Dave. It's been so good. Did I, we say I, boobs? I, I think we didn't. We had to have at least five boobs mentions, and I think we're probably at two or three. So Damn, we're gonna have, we, came, we came under. We came under. I, well, maybe we can. Maybe we, we will have to remedy that. We'll have to All do right. something along those lines. All right. So thank you so much for coming on, Dave. But we got to finish with one last question. And it's, it's so if you got a chance, you got a chance for 24 hours with Strawberry Fields. All right. Oh. 24 hours and anything goes. But the caveat is the first hour, you both have to be covered in oil and you both have to be listening to an, uh, an, another di- another time to die from uh, Jack White and Alicia Keys on repeat for an hour straight. If you get through that hour covered in oil listening to another way to die, you get the rest of the 23 hours to go. Are you taking the deal? You know, I, I was totally fine with the oil, even <laughs> suffocating and gasping for air. Um, putting my life in danger with the oil. And then you got to Jack White and Alicia Key and Another Way to Die. And I, I, I'm afraid I couldn't put myself through that torture, even for <laughs> Strawberry Field. So I'm I'm going to have to politely decline. <laughs> yeah, I, listening to that song is worse than dying of oil down your throat. It, it, oh, I, actually, any death that the Bond baddies have served up doesn't compare to listening to that song. <laughs> and, and I know I'm going to get hate mail for that, but I, I just, I never play that. I always get that song. Well, maybe, uh, maybe uh, Daniel Craig in No Time to Die is going to have to take Rami Malek out and just be like, hey, well, you're going to have to listen to the song for an hour. And he'd be like, all right, whatever his plan is, he's done. He's you know that's the ending of the movie. You just spoiled everything. I did. That's all how right. he kills <sighs> that's what we I couldn't wait till November to reveal it. Jack White and Alicia Key come on a Zoom call and they perform the song <laughs> and you just see Ramix, you know, his he starts to scar up even more and his head just splits open. Exactly. That, that's how he got the initial scar was the first time he saw it yeah. and now it, it's gotten worse. I love the fact that Joe Darlington thinks another way to die sounds like the Jefferson song, you know, beans don't fry in the kitchen, <laughs> beans don't fry in the bill. I just, I love that. But that is that song. Well, well what I about pre- you? Would you, would you, would you listen to the song and be covered oh. in oil for Strawberry Fields? Oh, Absolutely. I mean, I'll listen to I'll listen to that the whole twenty four hours. I can tune that well, out. How how old are you? I am thirty five. All right, so you're much younger and stronger than I am. So you could take <laughs> that. I mean, my my bones are my bones are made out of dust at this point you know, at fifty two. <laughs> so I can't take a song like that anymore. <laughs> well, I appreciate it so much, Dave. Thank you so much for your time, man. Again, you're you're the man. You you own my well, you living do. room. <laughs> You've owned my living room for years now with your YouTube channel. Watch all your stuff, Thanks. and I can't thank you for enough. The, the, the things you do for the community, the things you do for us Bond fans, um, you're a real inspiration, and I can't thank you enough for coming on today, and I can't wait to keep watching all your content. And Like I said, you own my living room, buddy, so thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. This was a blast. I knew it would be. Thanks, Donnie. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Dave. I figured we had to end it. We had to give him his outro with his favorite song with Alicia Keys and Jack White. I mean, it's it's an hour of listening to that song for 23 hours with 
with Strawberry Fields. I don't know, man. I'm, I'm taking that deal. I'm taking the deal. I'm taking the oil, taking the shower, calling it a day, just powering through. So thank you so much, Dave, for coming on. Such a treat. Thank you for spending your morning with me, giving me your time. And uh, um, man, what a treat. So as always, I want to just not proselytize, but pontificate. Betchel is a very interesting company as far as the reaches that they have throughout the world. Again, they have former Secretary of State and the Board of Directors. They have billion-dollar companies all around the world. They have billion-dollar projects. This is a huge company with a lot of clout and influence and experience. So wh why did this happen? I mean, who's to blame? And, and like it says so many times, success has a hundred fathers and failure is an orphan. And I just think that what Betchel did in this instance is they really didn't take into consideration how strong and result, how much resolve the Bolivian people had. And you, you had to really show the people what they're doing, make this a part of them. You can't just be like, here's your stuff, like it. You have to indoctrinate it into their culture, make it part of them. And that's not always as easy as possible. It's not always easy to have a, a populace tell them, hey, this is going to be really good for you guys. You need to have this. Just like you tell people smoking is bad for you, but people still pay $13, $14 a pack of cigarettes that's going to kill them. Use logic and reason. You have to use emotionality. I think what's, what Dave said that was so genius was that you have to also cater to people's emotions. You don't sell things based on reason all the time because not everyone lives on reason. We're emotionals. The problem with humanity is that it's full of humans and humans have emotions and thoughts and you have to also placate to that. Politicians, or how much politics came into it. You've got a mayor that has a Miscuni Dam that's not going to work and it's a dumb project. But why you have to you have to make it done so that he can pay off his contractors and everyone can get rich. You have the IMF and World Bank who has their own agenda, who wants to gain political favor throughout the whole world and get good goodwill and all that stuff. We're bringing water to everybody in addition to seizing an entire nation's assets. So, but we're bringing good water. So that's more complex stuff. And, and I think that quantum assaults missed the opportunity to really bring home this plot of quantum could have been um, Betchel, it could have been International Waters, it could have been a corporation, and Spectre could have been um, International Bank or the World, World Bank and International Monetary Fund, where it's these, these guys that had the real power and their subsidiary, and it could have been Bond trying to weave through all the politics, through the corporate politics, through the world politics, through the state politics, and it really could have been a really interesting, a really amazing movie that could have followed up the best Bond movie, Casino Royale, with an even better movie. So it's sad to see what could have been, when you research this, it's sad to see um, what we got versus what could have been. But at least we got some oil-covered boobs. So, all right, guys. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much, Dave, for coming on today. This has been episode nine. This has been Quantum of Solace. It's one of my favorite movies. Don't don't let people, don't let Joe Darlington, don't let all those naysayers say it's a bad movie. It's a good movie. It's got style. It's got class. It's a great movie. Thank you for joining. Uh, follow me on Instagram at Quantum of History. Thank you so much again to Toys of Bond, Ruben Wakeman, for doing that new logo. I love it. Thank you so much, man. Um, thanks for everybody coming in. We're going to tune in. Next week's going to be episode 10. Tune in, follow me, subscribe to me, and as always, stay safe, avoid the Rona. Thank you so much, guys.